during the summer we have been in in this preaching series where we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're calling it Major League because what we're doing to try to get at the meaning of what Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, which is an extremely significant teaching for Christians. Uh, is uh, something we're kind of good at through, of all things, these iconic baseball movies that uh, where we take a, a different video clip each week and uh, kind of use that as, as vehicles. So this week what we've got is a clip from the movie The Natural. And in this movie, uh, we, we'll see Ray Hobbs, who's this Babe Ruthian, uh, you know, mythical kind of baseball player, who uh, doesn't really get going in his career until later on in life. And uh, finally, he's got the opportunity to be able to get up to plate, to, to the plate and have his first at-bat in the major league. And when he does that, his manager gives him an instruction. So watch this and uh, see what happens as Roy Hobbs comes to the plate for the very first time. Let's see this one. Okay, did you catch it? What was it that Roy Hobbs' manager instructed him to do? Knock the cover off the ball. Right. Now, when he did that, I don't think there's very many people who, including the manager in this particular case, really instructed him to knock the cover off the ball. So, but he did it anyway. I mean, it was just, just absolutely amazing. Now, now just, first of all, what is a manager? You know, for anybody who may be not that based in, in baseball. Manager really, in any other sport, really would be called the head coach. But baseball is a little bit different. And the manager is the one who puts together the coaching team. He's the, he's the one who uh, manages the game, which is why he's called the manager. He's the one who really comes up with the signals, the signs that will be sent in uh, to, uh, to indicate what uh, the players should be doing, which it should be a steal or a bunch. Or, or whatever that might be that uh, they want to instruct the players at that moment. Back uh, when I was in Colorado, um, I used to coach and I played baseball team. So, and I was the, uh, I was the manager for that team. I uh, played at Todd Hilton Field, a uh, field that was built by, by the Rockies. And, and there uh, we would have uh, different signs that we would send in to the players. Some of those signs were, were things that were serious, things like, Dunk or take a pitch or you know, whatever that might be. But, but also, you know, we would also have uh, a sign or two that was just for the purpose of getting the kids to relax, getting them to laugh a little bit, have a little fun, remember this again. So we, uh, you know, there's one sign, for example, that, that we would send in that it was a sign just to say, pitcher has a big day yet, you know, and, and that was it. But for, you know, for, for Roy Hobbs, he had his manager. His manager was, was one who would instruct him, give him uh, guides on what he should do in the game. And uh, we can see for the Detroit Tigers, the uh, Tigers have uh, Ron Gardenhauer. And here's you know, Clark Anderson as, as manager. The question is, who is our manager? Who is our manager? I would hope the answer would be Jesus. You know, that, that would be what we'd be looking for there. That Jesus is our manager. In other words, we are the ones who are at that. And we're looking to Jesus and for the signals, for the signs on what it is that we should do in life. So in this series, what we're talking about here with major leagues is stepping up from the minor leagues of faith to the major leagues of faith. But Jesus could be dying on that cross just so we could languish in the minor leagues of faith. No, so that we could step up to the major leagues of faith and experience the power of God 
in our daily lives. So here Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount sends in these signals to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. So it says this, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you in the cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, in the case of Roy Hodge, he actually did what his manager said. What would happen if we actually did what our manager said? What would happen then? Now, first of all, we've got to figure out what our manager is saying. Uh, we, we, you know, if, if the player is not looking over to the coach to find the signal, he's not going to get the signal. If the coach may be signaling to bump and he lands up pointing away or, or, or whatever. So we need to figure out what in the world it is that he's playing here. You know, there's been times, maybe times for you as well, when you've tried really to fulfill the, the, the specific teaching that we read here, things like, for example, turning the other two. So remember, you know, one particular situation I was in where uh, I, I said, man, you know, in this situation, I'm turning the cheek so often, my cheeks are cracked. It, it's just, uh, you know, it's a difficult challenging situation. But sometimes when we look at them and, and say, you know, did we always really turn the other cheek? Do we always give more than what we were asked for? Uh, or, or say yes when we, when we were asked? Well, there was a conference I went to on Friday um, called the Global Leadership Summit. And uh, this happens every year. Uh, the speakers that speak from all walks of life, in the church, from secular life, um, and major business leaders, and all of this. And uh, one of the speakers there um, is a guy that uh, is uh, a native of China, but uh, living in this country for many years now. And his name is Jia Zhang. And Jai uh, Zhang was a guy who uh, was a speaker, author, things like that. But uh, he, he uh, got to the point in life where he was tired of rejection. He decided that he was going to set out to be rejected at least once every day for a hundred days so that he could desensitize himself to rejection. Okay, now who, who here loves rejection? Okay. Well, he didn't love rejection either, okay? You know, I kind of expected that there might be one weirdo in the bunch, you know, over the course of the weekend, but we've we got a pretty strong group of people that don't like rejection. Well, he didn't either. So he decided that he was going to do this every day for 100 days, look for rejection, figured that by the end of the 100 days, that he would be so desensitized to it that rejection wouldn't matter to him anymore whatsoever. So he made up a list of things that he then set out to do. Like, for example, Go to a complete stranger and ask for a hundred bucks. Okay, we'll that. Or, uh, you know how you can go to maybe some restaurant where they'll give you three refills and your drink? Well, he uh, go to a fast food restaurant and ask for a free refill on his burger. Now, that doesn't work that way. You know, so rejection. And uh, so day after day, he was getting rejection until one day, he uh, went and rang the doorbell. He's living in Houston. And he rang the doorbell. Um, a total stranger, did not know these people whatsoever. He was uh, uh, dressed up in his soccer uniform, had his thin bags on, his ball underneath his arm. And when the first big Texan came to the door with uh, the, the flag of Texas plastered against his, his t shirt, um, and he answered the door, and John Jones said to him, Hi, I'd like to play soccer in your backyard. Is that okay? 
Now, I fully expected that the guy would say no and slam the door in his face, but instead what happened was the guy said, Sure, come on in. And now he's got to go to the back leg and figure out how do I do This is totally unexpected. How in the world am I supposed to play soccer with myself in this stranger's backyard? So we had to figure this thing out. But that was the start of something that he noticed was just a disturbing thing for a guy who was seeking rejection every day for 100 days. Because people began to say yes. He had to come up with more and more challenging things where people would just clearly reject him. Like, for example, he intentionally went speeding down the road so that he would get pulled over by a cop. So that when the cop pulled him over, he could ask the cop this question. This is what he did. He said, Police officer, uh, excuse me, you know, I have never driven a police car before in my life. Would it be okay if I drove you a police car? And the cop looked at him and said, No, I've never been asked that question before. Sure, come on. Just let him drive his car. And then he said, Well, this is not working too well. You know, I've got to be rejected every day for 100 days or this is not going to work. So what can I do? So he said, hey, you know, I've never flown a plane. So <clears throat> he went to the airport, and he looked for a guy that looked like he might be a pilot. And sure enough, the guy was sitting right there, looked like a pilot, and he asked him, he said, hey, are you a pilot? And he said, yeah, I am. He said, do you have a plane? Do you want a plane? He said, yes, I do. And John Jones said, well, do you mind if I fly it? And uh, the guy looked at him and said, have you ever flown before? No, John said to him, no, I haven't. He said, looked at him for a moment, paused, and said, Well, then come on, let's fly my plane. <laughs> you know, he didn't turn him down at all. He, he accepted him, and he threw the plane. I think in that particular case, maybe this guy was looking to maybe get some money from him to keep him out of flying or something. But in general, you know, it makes me wonder, what in the world are these people thinking? You know, that the time and time again, that these people would say yes to the most ridiculous things. And, and, you know, maybe is it because they have a manager like I, and they go to a passage like this that says, you know, somebody asks of you, give them more, give them what they've asked for, you will say yes. And in this case, I've got to say, wait a minute, but some of these things we shouldn't have said yes to. You know, have there some things we shouldn't say yes to? How about this? You know, we can take this passage to it. What would you say? What would you say to the woman who is beaten night after night by her physically abusive husband? Would you say, turn the other cheek? How about the genocide of World War II or of Rwanda? After reading this passage, would you simply say, hey, just go along with it? Well, oftentimes Christians over the last two thousand years have seen this. Oftentimes we have this habit of majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. So we get lost in the details of scripture and miss the main point. Which would be a little bit like if you're looking over your coat in baseball and you're looking for those signs that are sending out and you're sending out, you know, all these signs and, and uh, trying to communicate things to you. And some of the signs we're sending out, the coach is sending out, don't mean anything at all. But other signs, and some of them mean, you know, the pitcher's got a big barrier. But, uh, you know, other signs are important. And you've got to figure out which one it is that is important. 
what's the main thing so we don't get lost in the details of the scripture? What we can see when we're trying to find the main things in scripture, whatever the scripture is, is read it in its context. And if we read this thing in its context, what we can see is that God's character is one that opposes evil, that opposes sin. It does not condemn things like genocide or domestic violence. It doesn't do that. God values justice. God hates sin. And because of this, he needs to find a way to deal with it. And he needs to find a way to deal with the destructiveness of sin and the, and the, and the harm that it causes people and the separation that there is because of sin in people's lives between men and each other and men and God. Sin must be punished, which is why Jesus went to the cross. It is central to our faith. Jesus confronted sin. He didn't condemn it. He was not passive. Passively condemning sin. He confronted it. As Paul did, as you can see here in Acts 22. In Acts 22, what we see here is a story of some of the passing of Paul. And if we get lost in the details of this passage from Sermon on the Mount, what we can say is, okay, Paul, tell me what it is. But we can see here that Paul doesn't tell me what it is. Here's what happened. It's probably getting pretty boisterous or getting angry at Paul. It says in verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, and they raised their voices and shouted, Live the earth for him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like that. As they stretched him out to flogging, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked. This man is a Roman citizen. Paul didn't just let them get away with it. He said he stood for what was right. He claimed his right as a Roman citizen to make the abuse stop. As Paul models here, there are times when you should avoid those instances of abuse. There are times when you should not let people walk over you. Well, in another example, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, For even when we were with you, we gave you this word. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We didn't mean those who couldn't work or something like that. But what he's saying is that each one should be contributing. They should not be taking advantage of one another. When I was in Israel, I tour guide a Jewish Christian that we called Mama. She did not like Orthodox Jews at all. And, and it may be different in Israel than here, by the way. But, but in Israel, Orthodox Jews, and I didn't know this before, but uh, uh, they were paid a stipend by the government because they don't work. They don't serve in the army. They don't do many of the things that uh, other Jews are called upon to do. And not only that, but they are paid uh, more than someone would be paid to serve in the army. So she was a little offended by that. You know, if we're going to be part of the family, we should all be working together, is what, what she's talking about. We shouldn't be taking advantage of one another, which would be uh, along the same lines of really what, what Paul is talking about there. So now you are at the place in a similar time from your mind. What's he trying to say to you? 
what's the point of it? Now, let me explain this with you another way. Fear is a natural human reaction that a lot of us can relate to. But when I am alone, my ego gets in the way. And then I try to retaliate to get even. I try to build up my ego again to show that I am not somebody that is that lowly that this person has made me out to be, and instead I will retaliate and try to get even. Sometimes believers can do so while hiding behind the idea that they are doing so for the greater good. They just, but the reality of it is, it's just a pending ground. Take a story, for example, I'll tell you about when I was in Chief of the Yard. And uh, there was a pastor in the church there, and, and uh, we had a different dinner with them. So I uh, went to the bank, and the other time happened to be Sunday, I was a member of the congregation of friends. Uh, and it was a pain-free dance. That's a good dance to work with, right? Pain-free dance. So she gave me a shot of medicine and uh, came back in after what was a period of time and said, so do you feel anything? And I said, no, I don't know. I don't feel it. And she gave me a second shot of medicine. They gave me a second shot of medicine. I didn't feel anything down my shoulders after that. I mean, I was totally numb from here on out. So it was just, you know, just amazing. Like, you could do anything to me at that point in time. Well, there's one problem with this, and that is that I, I really had not planned ahead. And in an hour, I was supposed to be speaking at a church uh, and giving this, this lecture there, leading this discussion on this thing uh, for the church that was considering leading its denomination and joining the LCMC, our denomination here. And I uh, called the, the talk, um, Where Are We and How Did We Get Here? And the talk was about the history of the church and theology of the church and things like that, and it was referring to you know, the direction that, that we ought to be on, you know, that kind of a thing. So anyway, when I was uh, going to be there, so I showed up there after getting the second shot of medicine, went and came in and down to here, and uh, showed up there saying, Hi, my name is Greg, and uh, where am I, and how did I get here? You know, <clears throat> They did not, for some reason, join the SNC. I'm not sure why that was the case. But on the way there, okay, there was this truck that pulled up behind And uh, I'm in this room uh, The truck pulls up behind us, this monster pickup truck. And you know, he was kind of speeding up behind me and pulls over the side of the highway. And the driver leans way over to make sure that I can see him. You know, and I'm, I'm, you know, Looking around here, and, and uh, the guy leans way over and reaches out his, his hand to give me a particular gesture, raising his middle finger in my general direction. And I think to myself, wow, he must have got the face out of middle finger. He can't even raise more than his middle finger to wave to me. That's, that's, no, I knew exactly. And, you know, I must have done something to him. Maybe it drove too slow. Maybe it harmed his ego to think that anybody would think that he would be somebody that would drive that slow. Or maybe I, uh, in my numbed up, nervous state, had forgotten my blanket. I canceled my blanket. And he was offended by it. Or, or maybe I inadvertently, in my numbed up state, cut him off and didn't know it. And he, his ego was damaged by that. So, in order to be able to get back at me, you know, he would lean out and do that. Now, here's 
understanding what the blessings of the world. It didn't, didn't really do him any good for me any good or the greater good in the world. It was the good that came about. Absolutely none. And none whatsoever. If his ego was that shallow, if it was that fragile that it would be repaired by a simple gesture as you pass another vehicle, his ego must be made up. Yeah, that's right. Retribution does not work. Matter of fact, if your ego is damaged, if your ego is bruised in, in a marriage relationship and you practice retribution, you're liable to wind up sleeping on the hood of your car. And it is not something that is useful or good. It damages relationships. Imagine now if that guy had turned out to be, and you know, unbeknownst to both of us at the moment, the of the first council, and I think they started going for it. And so up and say, oh, hi, I think we've met in the studio. And I said, what the beauty doesn't work? That's what Jesus is talking about. And now you're at the point. The picture flow is a picture that comes right under your feet. It's not too bad. What are you going to do? He said, just as that guy. You know, you're going to try to defend your ego here because the guy brought you back. And your ego is now bruised. Wait a minute, there's a sign coming in from the manager. And what's the sign? The sign is the point of Jesus perspective. Which is this. That the sign is to somebody that they do so. Find somebody to serve. Get over yourself. Retribution, burn it to left field. Or better yet, pick it out of the ballpark. And see there's a better way. And none of you give any instructions in the way that it's right. And here's what he says Get over yourself. And serve somebody. That's the point of the message. That's why I appreciate it.